welcome to episode eight of Eerie Essex. We feel like it's been a really long time since we recorded one of these because we uh, did the last one in one day on New Year's Eve. It was a all day marathon of recording. Bethan edited the whole thing. I collected all the social media images and sort of sorted that out. And we were up until about one o'clock doing that. Oh, yeah. I was editing during the fireworks by Big Ben. So, Um, Elsa, what are we talking about this week? So this week we're talking about UFOs. So Bethan's got the first story this week and she's promised me some surprises along the way with her stories and I'm really looking forward to them. So off you go, Bethan. Okay. I've just been told I can't minimise you, Elsa, so I'm just going to have to put you in in the background (laughs) for a while. Never minimise me. (laughs) Okay. I started looking at uh, newspaper cuttings and from like the newspaper archive on UFOs and flying saucers throughout Essex. And I got a few that were good. And then I I went into the rabbit hole. I went into the National Archives of the UFO reports that have been released recently. But then I dug further back in the records as far as about 1930. And I came up with some absolute corkers. So yeah, whatever I told you else I was doing this week, I'm not now. That'll have to wait for another episode because these are just too good. The first place I looked at was Shoebury. So this is from a, I, I don't know if it's a Mr. or Mrs., but it just says R.H. Sadler. So I'll read the letter to you, Elsa, and then I'll tell you the reason given by the ministry for what occurred at this time, and then we can discuss it maybe. Okay, so dear sir, from July 31st to August the 1st this year, an object was seen in the sky by many people from Oldborough to South End in the home counties. The slow rate of movement, small, regular, apparent size, and having for long periods suggest that the object might have been a balloon. Calculations based on reports so far received suggest the height of the object was above 85,000 feet, the diameter above 200 feet, and the speed when it did move around 10 miles an hour. The object was, as far as can be ascertained, approximately pyramidal in shape with the apex down and travelled from Oldborough south-southwest to south end taking it appears 12 hours over the journey depending uh, pending much of the time hovering and then on the first we're seen west of south end in the home counties we would be grateful if you could give us your opinion as to whether or not the object could have been a balloon or whether or not it was one of yours if you desire more information we are more than ready to send it to you and that was yours faithfully rh sadler i always wonder how you know, somebody without any measuring equipment is able to give all these details. I mean, possibly they could be off, but I i mean, I've read through quite a through few of these reports this week and they mm-hmm. always give like, oh, it was 200 feet in diameter. And it's like, how do you know? Like, you know, our measuring guide is 10 London buses. Yes. So that's, that's what the news uses. <laughs> well, that's what my PIP form used when I said, how far can you walk? And it was like, it's the length of four double-decker buses. I was like, well, I've never really thought about it. <laughs> but now I can't stop thinking about it. Yeah, you need to find four double-decker buses parked up in a row and see if you can get to the end of them. So I was going to send you a picture, but I can't find it now. Okay, so I've sent you a picture of a weather balloon. Have you got it? Uh Yes, I can see a weather balloon. Okay, so the reason given by the ministry in their reply to this letter was it was a cosmic ray research balloon and it was part of the International Year of the Quiet Sun where lots of these balloons were actually released around this time. And 
how this person actually describes the bloom, like a pyramid with the apex down. I can imagine if there was a bit of a downdraft or it was seen at a distance, it could look like an upside down pyramid. Yeah, I can see that. It really does. I mean, yeah, a distance. Definitely and this is actually distance. this is actually a picture of one of those cosmic ray research balloons, and I'll put it on Instagram for our viewers. So if you want to see what it looks like, head to our Twitter or our Instagram feed. And the top of it is metallic, so yeah, if it caught the light right at a distance, it would look like a, a disc or an upside down pyramid. Isn't that the excuse they use in Men in Black? Do you know what? I've got a list of the excuses they've made, and it ranges from weather bloom. Are you talking about the real? Sorry air quotes, real Men in Black or the movie, because I'm talking about the movie. Oh, no, I'm not talking about the real Men in Black. I'm talking about our own ministry here in the UK. Uh, okay. And they always use either aircraft collision lights, anti-collision, sorry. They're not trying to lure collisions. Weather balloons. That's or, what they want you to think. <laughs> that's what they want you to think. Or Jupiter. Jupiter's a firm favourite. Jupiter basically photobombing Earth. Yeah, basically. Yeah, I just like that that letter and all of the responses by the ministry can be that there are i mean this is probably the the smallest response but some of them are really funny which i'll come to later because i don't think they realize that in the future freedom of information these would be available and they get quite catty <laughs> yeah so i thought it was interesting the fact that um this person was as you say quite specific in what they saw and obviously knew a lot about what they were talking about. I think they were an astronomer from one of the previous letters. Oh, maybe maybe they did have measuring equipment then. Yeah. Yeah, that's the first one. That's Shoebury. So I'll hand over to you for the next one. Right. So my one was suggested by, to me by uh, somebody I know who is very into the UFO researching. And they said it was a very interesting case. They're not sure that it gets told regularly. And it was based just outside Langenhoe. Oh, well, it's based outside Langenhoe, but it's it's quite close to a few other things. I'll I'll you, I'll show. You. I like a, I'll you'll see in a second. So, on September fourteenth, nineteen sixty-five, something amazing occurred near Mersey Island. And no, it wasn't a Roman centurion asking for directions to the Peldon Rose, nor was it the Reverend Sabine bearing gold actually remembering one of his kids' names. Uh-huh. It was in fact something out of this world. Literally, we'll see. <laughs> It was Sunday about 1am and Paul Green was travelling to his home in West Mersey, having started from Colchester. It was a clear night, the moon was up and the stars twinkled overhead. Paul hadn't been drinking and was in a fit state travelling along the long, nearly empty road. He'd just overtaken a moped and was coming up to Pete Tai, a few yards south of Langenho. Pete Tai is an interesting name, isn't it? It's spelled it P-E-T-E, as in like Pete, someone called Pete. Pete? Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was going to be like Peter's in the, you know, fuel. P-E-80. Yes. What happened next was reported to Dr. Bernard E. Finch a few weeks later. So we're lucky enough to have the description in Paul's own words. As I approached the straight road south to Langenhoe Hall, I heard a high-pitched humming over to my left, brackets, the east. The noise became louder and I looked up for a sign of an approaching aircraft. I could see none but I noticed a small pinpoint of blue light to the east over Brightlingsea, about five miles away. The light was winking and becoming rapidly larger. And then I realised it was coming in my direction over Langenhoe Marsh. The humming then became much louder and changed to a high-pitched buzz. It dawned on me that the light and the sound were connected. The engine of my bike then began to cough and sputter. It missed several times, then stopped dead. The lights went out. 
The blue flashing light was now about a mile away to the east, and I could make out some sort of outline as an enormous object spun into view. Looming up large and uncanny out of the sky, it resembled the upper half of a large spinning top and was about the size of a gasometer. I couldn't remember what one of those was, so I looked it up. So a gasometer is one of those very large structures that you see. I think I've seen some of the outskirts of London before, um, which they look like a big round uh, scaffolding. And I've never known what they were before, but they're apparently gas storage. And they oh, are, I know the ones you mean. As you go are, out of London towards yeah. the West, there's loads of them. Absolutely enormous. Mm-hmm. There appeared to be a dome on top, inside of which was flashing a strange blue light. The object slowly descended, tilting as it did so, and I was able to catch a glimpse of its underbelly. It was rimmed by numerous round objects. The whole... <laughs> yeah, go on. <laughs> Get it out. Get it out <laughs> You're going to like the next sentence. The whole thing resembling a bull race. Okay. Yeah. So a bull race, for those of you who aren't particularly dirty minded, is a, it's like a small circular track, which has bull bearings inside of it. So that's what he's saying. It looked like an enormous version of that. Paul goes on. I had dismounted and approached a few paces towards the object. I felt spellbound and was not able to move or speak. Just as I had become paralysed, the flashing blue light became so intense that it was painful and it appeared to fluctuate in rhythm with my heartbeat. I felt myself tingling all over, rather like when one gets an electric shock or had been holding onto an electric fence too long. The buzzing then became quieter and the object descended in the area of the wick where there are several farmhouses. Suddenly, the scooter that I had overtaken on the road approached and its engine engine coughed and stopped. The rider, a young lad dressed in a leather jacket, dismounted and stood petrified, staring at the blue light. Neither of us spoke, nor did he look in my direction. My head began to throb and I felt as if there was a tightening band around it. With great effort, I was able to move and I grasped my bike and tried to start it. I pushed it along the road and was gratified to hear the engine suddenly burst into life. I mounted and raced as fast as I could away from the dreadful, painful blue light as I raced down the road. The object was hidden by a tall line of hedges on the side of the road, but I could still see it for some time, glow blue in the sky. He arrived home at nearly 2am and woke up his invalid mother, which he says something that he never does. But he was so frightened by the experience that he had to tell someone. And then the following day, he notices that his hair and clothes were crackling in an unusual manner manner which appeared to be charged with electricity so a few days later he was discussing the experience with a friend who lives in shrub end in colchester which is he says it's five miles i'm guessing it this means northwest of the wick so his friend told him about the same time that paul had seen this his dog had been barking and he had opened the door to put it out and he'd the his friend had seen a large blue light pass by rapidly in the sky directly overhead heading towards Langenhoe. Wow. Yeah. That is a good Um, story. Few things I forgot to mention in this story, which will probably give you an idea of why he describes things the way the way he does, is that Paul was an engineer. Mm -hmm. So not only would he be very well acquainted with electricity and how that felt to get electrocuted by the sounds of it, but the it gives a reason for the why he described things like a gasometer or a ball race. Yeah. So that is his own personal perspective on it. Some of the reasons I, I mean, again, not a scientist, but some of the reasons I came up with of what he saw. Can I guess one? Yeah, go and guess it. Ball lightning? Yeah, that was top of my list, ball lightning. Mm-hmm. And I looked up some videos of it. And to be fair, I mean, it's not exactly as he described it, but it, it's very sort of very close. Um, the other thing could have been a transformer explosion. 
Oh, which can create effects like ball lightning. It almost um, had like an EMP effect. Like with, um, it's strange that both vehicles stopped at the same spot. Yeah, the engines gave out. Yeah, and that's um, my second story has something very similar to that Ooh, as well. Okay, actually, a lot of UFO stories have that, don't they? Yes. Yeah. Like across the world, like you always hear like. I mean, haunted roads have some of that as well, don't they? Yeah, it's that sort of phenomena. It seems to come hand in hand with mm. machinery. St- well, yeah, machinery stopping. We've co- we've covered that several times in previous episodes. So, um, so the other thing I I went for, which is in your first story, is I went for some sort of damaged balloon, i.e., hot air balloon or weather balloon, and then I put in in my notes, I'm reaching here. Yeah, I mean, I know they, I know the government and ministries love to jump to weather balloons. I mean, they are impressive things. They're huge. I didn't realize how big weather balloons were when when they said the weather balloon. I just imagined this little helium balloon from up there. I mean, that picture that you showed me earlier, that thing was on. It was right next to a truck, mm. and it dwarfed the truck. It was like the size of. Um, it's like a small hot air balloon. Well, yeah, a small hot air balloon. I was thinking in terms of like how big it would. It's like a um, a suburban like detached house next to yeah. a car. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, not that I'm discounting any of these. I mean, as I. I'll tell you later, I have my own UFO experience. And it's one of those things that you can describe it and describe it. And yes, it does sound like several explanations. When you actually see it yourself and you're there, uh, I'm just going to quote the uncanny theme tune (laughs) here from the podcast, Uncanny. I know what I saw. But it's that you. It's very hard to describe something. The feeling you get and yeah. the the dimensions. I mean, I'm awful with dimensions and distances. So when I tell you my story later, I'm going to be like so vague. <laughs> I mean, I I have a semi kind of weird, maybe. I mean, UFO in the sense that it was a unidentified flying object. But I live very close to a military base, so you know, I I just assumed it was one of theirs. But I have a story that's, you know, I, I I can describe it to you, but it is strange. Well, do you know what? I, I do think sometimes it might, it, even if it isn't, you know, visitors from outer space, a good way for the military to find out if their aircraft really is, you know, evading detection is to just fly it and see how many UFO reports there are. It's like, oh, we had none <laughs> that night. Oh, whatever we did that in that test was really good. Or we had several people see it. Oh, well, back to the drawing board. Maybe I should do it now, actually. My my tiny story. It's so short. Um, so me and my neighbor were standing outside um our building late one night, and we suddenly noticed that there was a green light about maybe 10 foot above the street lights. Oh. Um, and it was just hovering there. And we're used to helicopters, but this was at no sound. This, I mean, we we were out very late at night. The street was very, very dead. No, absolutely no sound. And See, that, just, as soon as you say that, you know, I know that everybody's going to jump to drone, but they make a racket. They do make a racket. We've got several people around here who have drones and they have... It's like my, a garden like, strimmer. Yeah, my neighbours once attempted to spy on other neighbours with their drone and they <gasps> flew one right... They had it hovering outside of my window and um, like you can't ignore it. It was it sounded like, a, like you said, a garden strimmer right outside my window. Or a they lawnmower. Were, They're loud. Yeah. It, they were messing about. Like there wasn't anything nefarious behind it, behind it. They were just playing some jokes on people. But yeah. I heard no sound. There was absolutely no sound when I was standing on the street. So the screen light was hovering and we both suddenly, suddenly caught sight of it. And as we did, it started moving really slowly, right straight down the street. It followed the street line exactly. 
And then it went over the top of there's a um, there was a takeaway at the end of the street. So it went over the top of that and down into the estate um, on the other side of that. And then that was all we saw of it. And um, yeah, it was really strange. It was one of those nights where the cloud covers quite low. Mm. So we could just see the screen light, but it was just at that height. There's nothing above there. Like there's, there's no electrical lines running down that street or anything. So there's no reason that something could have run down that street like that, except for it was possibly something from the military. Which is probably more or less what it is, but it's still cool to see. Yeah. I mean, it was cool. Freaked us out for a few minutes. (laughs) I mean, we're not out to debunk any of these things. I mean, even if there is an explanation, often it's still pretty cool, whatever the explanation is. That's that's the thing I love about being a skeptic is that sometimes looking at the explanation is more, for me, more interesting than the actual story. Like I love the sort of weird science behind it. Well, with that in mind, can I introduce you to one of my new favourite people? Yes. June. Oh yes, you told me you told me that you wanted to introduce me to June. I can't wait. June from Leon C. I love her. I think I always say that Ron Swanson is my spirit animal, but I think June would be my Patronus. <laughs> if we're talking Harry Potter. I'd send her after the Dementors. She is fearless. Oh, I can't wait to hear about her. <laughs> so I've I found a couple of letters that I think from the sounds of the first one I found, there had been quite a bit of correspondence with her in the war office and the like the ministry as a whole. I mean, there was the UFO desk in the ministry, which actually stopped in 2009, which I'll talk about later. But um, this is who she ended up in contact with at the time. So again, 1963, Elsa. It's that year. So the first letter she sent was, I will, I'll read it as it is. So this is what she first sent. This is... I enclose a cutting from the South End Standard. By the way, I couldn't find this anywhere. It it wasn't recorded and I can't find it on the National Archives. If anyone wants to do some digging around, please feel free. I enclose a cutting from the South End Standard of the 15th of August, 1963. This letter was one of a number which appeared in the paper over a period of several weeks, dealing with the subject of flying saucers. Now, when I looked at the uh, paranormal database and other archives, yeah, this, this sort of like late summer to early autumn, sort of like August through to October, there were so many UFO sightings in the East Anglia area. I'd love to I, know what the weather pattern was at that time, just to be really boring there for a second. Well, from a lot of the, you know, when every, anybody writes in or talks about it, they often describe the weather. And a lot of the weather reports were, it was quite a clear night. There was nothing really out the ordinary. So I think it expresses very well the disquiet and frustration that many thinking people feel over the mysterious suppressive silence maintained by the government on this very important subject. According to my observations, it appears to be government policy to spare no pains to discredit any and every sighting reported to them, even though they, the government, are unable to produce proof that flying saucers do not exist or any convincing argument against the widely held theory that they are visiting the Earth from other planets. This apparent frantic desire to disprove at all costs all accounts of UFO phenomena would seem to me to indicate that the government know more about the subject than they choose to admit. I do not understand what their motive is in concealing the truth from the populations. And then she goes on to talk about, and I did actually look into this, so I'll read what's here and I'll tell you what I found out. So I understand that a month or two ago, Mr. Harold Watkinson, who was the former Minister of Defence, was asked a question about flying saucers at a political meeting. It was reported that he answered he might have agreed in writing when he resigned as Defence Minister, 
not to talk about flying saucers and are given the pledge of secrecy on the subject. He would obviously have said so straight out and not given this extremely suggestive reply to this question. I looked into, because you can look online for all his speeches he gave, and I looked up um, the speech he gave, which he refers to, and what he actually said was, before I left the ministry, I had to sign a large number of papers promising never to reveal certain facts I had learned as Minister of Defence. The subject of flying saucers may have been included. To which point I put in my notes, fair point, June. I mean, he could have just said that as like, I don't remember. May It might have been included. Maybe I shouldn't say anything. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it's you vague, take, it's vague you enough take it a from number either of ways. Way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it could be that he genuinely didn't remember or that he was a bit like, ah, Ah, do I say, do I not say? Maybe he was caught out. So then June goes on to say what her beliefs are that the, you know, there are other intelligences in the solar system who are probably looking at our planet going, yikes. I mean, I think that sums up her belief. Because if at the time there was the, you know, the nuclear experimentations going on, a lot of people were very worried about the future of humanity. And this comes out a lot in these reports. I think that if there is anything out there, they're probably still looking at our planet going, yikes. Oh, God, yeah. I think they've given up on us long ago. Now they're just looking at it as a school project, as in what could go wrong? I mean, the letter that came back to her, so this is the ministry explanation, was they talked about a large number of satellites and such. I think they said at the time there was about 98 satellites in orbit. And they it's very hard to pinpoint any one particular sighting because there's so much traffic in space. I mean, I, I imagine that's so much harder now, especially with the SpaceX satellites that I've seen several times. And yeah, if you didn't know what they were, they do look like a convoy of UFOs. Have you seen them? I don't think I have. I'm going to have to look that up because it's, it's the Elon Musk ones. They're, that's they're, what I was going to say, isn't it? Elon Musk. It is, yeah. And his, so, um... they've had so many complaints from astronomers going, he has ruined like nighttime viewings. I mean, you know, those like lovely, beautiful, slow shutter speed pictures that people have taken of the night sky where you can capture the Milky Way and everything. They're now ruined because of the amount of satellites going around. There's all lines throughout the pictures. Ah. So, I mean, that just shows you how I much mean, traffic e- is in the sky at the moment. Elon Musk ruins a lot of things, but, you know, night sky was one I didn't know about. There you go. Add it to the list. So, June replied to the ministry on the 10th of October, 1963, and she really goes for it here. So, Dear sir, thank you for the letter of the 8th. I appreciate the large number of objects now in the air and in outer space. It does create a difficulty in the matter of identifying and proving the existence of vehicles from other planets that are thought to be visiting Earth. I'm not going to read her whole letter because she does talk for quite a long time about how she's convinced it's all a cover-up and that she doesn't understand why it should be a cover-up, especially when they're so prolific. And then she talks about the Aetherian Society. Have you ever, do you know anything about the Aetherian Society? I absolutely do not. That is a completely new one on me. Okay. It's really interesting, especially as we've just watched Archive 81. I wonder if Archive 81 actually got some inspiration from this. The Aetherian Society started by, was started by George King, who was born in Surrey, and he describes himself as a mental channel with an extraterrestrial being from Venus called Ethereum. And he recorded a lot of what he describes as messages and instructions from this being. And they actually, I went on their website and they believe that a lot of deities throughout the religions in the world are aliens. So they think that Krishna was from Saturn, Jesus was from Venus, as well as Buddha. Buddha and Jesus were both from Venus. And they both came to Earth to try and steer us in the right direction. 
which uh, yeah I can get down with that makes more sense than a lot of things in the Bible this is actually sounding very familiar now actually yeah Um, I think a lot of it has been adopted into Hollywood well no there's actually um there's an example I'm going to give later of uh actually I was going to suggest it for you to watch it's a program called Helia Ooh. And Helia started off as an investigation into, I think it was um, somebody reporting quite a severe haunting. And the people who he reported it to um, took it basically to its nth um, degree. Mm-hmm. They they went with this very interesting research method where they followed everything that seemed to be a coincidence to the point where they couldn't follow it anymore. A little bit like... Uh, sort of doing every side quest yes. in a computer <laughs> game. <laughs> but I think that's one of the things they got onto. Interesting. I'll probably, I'll probably talk about this a bit a bit later because mm. there's, I think there's, there's something in, in my next story which um, it comes up. But, yeah, it, it just it's fascinating to watch because they, they – I'm going to talk about this later. I'll get into mm. it again later. Well, I mean, June wraps up by talking about the prophecies that George King received on the 7th of September 1963, which is actually the beginning of all these sightings. And it talks, I mean, she sent the paper that the Ethereum Society sent out and I read through it and it talks a lot of impending doom and meteorological destruction. It even talks about a pandemic taking over the earth in years to come that will wipe out thousands of people and... It does sound remarkably like the coronavirus, but you know that—that's just yeah. I'm not going to go down that route. I got really sucked into this because it was two a.m. and the the whole letter ends with this. I'm going to read to you this now. It is your world and not ours. It is your karma and not ours. It is your responsibility and not ours. And it is your opportunity and not ours. And that apparently was actually from Ethereum. That's what June highlighted. She underlined this in the letter she sent to the ministry. Oh, sorry, George King was born in Shropshire, not sorry, in 1919. And I just, bless it, she she did a very long letter. And fair play, the ministry got back to her the next day. So she sent this letter on the 10th of October. On the 11th of October, they sent a letter out saying, thank you for your letter. Contents have been noted. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how it ended. (laughs) But I mean, June did talk a lot about sightings around Leon Sea, around South End. So... Yeah, and the Ethereum Society, no matter what you think, they, their mission statement is to try and steer the world in a better direction. So they make more sense than our current government. So, I mean, yeah, a lot of things make more sense than our current government. Mm. Chocolate teapots make more sense than our current government. Sorry, <laughs> getting a bit <laughs> political. <stay> politics. <laughs> <laughs> so that really nicely, um, have you finished your second one there? Is that... I have, yeah. Okay. That actually really nicely leads into my second story, which is the incident at Averley. <gasps> I've purposely not looked into this because I, I vaguely know of it. And I know it's a good one, so take it away. It is a good one. Before Netflix, Amazon Prime, or even Live Record, if you wanted to see a TV programme on telly, you better have your butt glued right in front of the screen when the Radio Times told you it was on. Which is exactly why John and Susan Day, with their kids Karen, Stuart and Kevin, were travelling home in a rush one night, having just visited with family. Just a note on the names here, they're pseudonyms, apparently. Um, they were given to the family by the researchers and eventually uh, that they eventually contacted. Sometimes, for some reason, Sue gets called Elaine, depending on the website you're looking at. It's really strange, but uh, it that therefore makes it really hard to actually look up anything about this family and what they went on to do. 
The drive that they were taking should have been half an hour. They left in plenty of time, but they were never going to see that program. Or maybe they did look it up on YouTube years later. Who knows? The day they left their relatives, it was 9.50 p.m. on October 27th, 1974. On the drive home, Karen and Stuart were asleep in the back of the car. But seven-year-old Kevin was awake. He was, in fact, the first one in the family to notice something out of the ordinary. When he saw the blue oval light travelling alongside the car as they approached Averley, the light passed in front of the car and vanished. It was 10 o'clock now. The family were getting concerned as things were starting to go rather strange. All noise inside the car seemed to have stopped and the car radio had begun to smoke, causing John to try and rip it out. A block of green mist then enveloped the car, but they soon drove out of this peculiar fog bank and things returned to normal. When they reached home, John stayed in the car to try and put the radio back together. And Elaine took the children indoors and put them in bed. She was shocked to find it was now one in the morning. The family were very tired the next day, but decided not to put any further significance on the strange homeward journey. Shortly after the UFO fog encounter, John and Susan began to often notice three certain cars following them around. One was a small red sports looking car. Another was a Jaguar. And the last one was a large white car, brackets, they've put Ford Executive. All of them had darkened windows, which I'm guessing was pretty strange for 1974. Yeah, especially those type of cars. Mm. Over the next few months, though, their lives took an unexpected turn. John had a nervous breakdown just before Christmas, which forced him to give up his job. Kevin, who had previously had trouble with reading school, suddenly improved. The whole family, except for Stuart, turned vegetarian. And curiously, they said they were now put off by the smell of meat. And John, who had previously been a heavy smoker, now abstained from cigarettes completely. There were also unnerving incidents around the family home. At 7pm on December 13th, 1977, John and Sue were watching television when a large portable radio sitting on top of the TV set rose into the air about three inches and dropped back down. Later, the same evening, the entire family was gathered in front of the television when the handle on the door leading to the hall outside suddenly turned slowly as if somebody was opening it and then shot back to its original position. Twice, the back door of the house, which was normally kept locked, forcefully flew open. The second time this happened, the smell of lavender filled the room and other anonymous (laughs) humming noises, clicking sounds, And even Morse code type sounds were occasionally heard inside and outside of their home. I do find this crossover between um, poltergeist phenomenon Mm. and alien induction interesting. Uh, There is a thought amongst people who believe in the supernatural and ghosts and cryptids, alien inductions and so forth, that everything is actually one and the same thing. Mm. And usually they um, attribute this to parallel universes. I would think I was, I was talking to Joe Hickey Hall from the Modern Fairy Sightings podcast, and there's quite a correlation between fairy sightings and UFO sightings and owl encounters. Owls. Always owls. damn owls. Always damn owls. So this relates back to Helia, which I was talking about um, earlier. I did. I loved this program so much. It was so weird, but I just loved how they just tailed everything to the nth degree. By the middle of 1977, the family decided it was time to get some closure on the strange events of that October night. They contacted UFO investigators Andy Collins and Barry King. John and Susan told them about the experience and vivid dreams that they had had since that night. 
often concerning strange creatures in hospital operating theatres. In October 1977, Andrew was visiting John and Susan and ended up staying the night, as it was very late and a thick fog had set in. Mm. He slept on the sofa, but during the night he was awakened when the sound of pots and pans being banged together in the kitchen started. It really shook Andrew up. The commotion only lasted for a few seconds. Um, But instead of going into the kitchen to investigate, he remained under the sheets, which seems like a really sensible option. (laughs) Andrew wrote, suddenly I felt very, a very strange sensation in my feet. It gradually moved up my whole body and over my head. It was a very stimulating and soothing feeling that soon passed away. Then the sensation was felt again in my feet and it moved all the way up through his body and to his head again. Once more, it faded. And he said this feeling left him with a real sense of ease and peacefulness. Yeah, I've come across that a couple of times, a euphoria afterwards. I wonder if that could be described as an adrenaline rush, though. Yeah. Or, you know, like when you hear like a music, a piece of music that really like moves you and you feel all your little hairs. Goosebumps. Yeah. yeah, goosebumps is endorphins like rushing through your system. So, I mean, it does sometimes feel like a rush. So I'm not, I'm not, not that I'm discounting it. I Maybe mean, we don't know what caused like, it. I mean, if you woke up in the middle of the night and you heard pots and pans bag, banging, you'd probably go, like, your heart would go a million miles an hour, wouldn't it? Because that mm-hmm. is not right. No, no. <laughs> Unless you have him. a cat who likes to get into things and throw things <laughs> off of counters. Okay, I so. sleep through everything now. <laughs> so the couple eventually un- agreed to undergo hypnosis. Whilst under, they revealed an almost textbook alien abduction scenario. Their car had been pulled upwards by a beam of light, and once aboard the strange craft, they were medically examined by four-foot-high creatures who resembled, in their words, birds. But there were also other taller entities wearing one-piece suits and balaclava-like helmets, which seemed to be in charge of of the ship. They actually drew some great pictures, which I found, and I'll share them on our social media. But the small ones, actually, they really remind me of Ewoks. Um, I think it's Skeksis. Skeksis. What are Skeksis? Oh, from Dark Crystal, the bird-like things. Oh, I haven't watched Dark Crystal. Oh, we'll put it on your list. It's I good. find I find uh, like that style of puppetry, unless it's you know David Bowie in the Labyrinth, very disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It, actually, to be fair, Dark Crystal is pretty creepy. Even the bits that aren't meant to be creepy, it's just like oh, yeah. <laughs> Here's where we start crossing into territory I'm not entirely comfortable with. I think a lot of conspiracies around alien abduction aren't particularly harmful on their own. However, they act like stepping stones onto the next wilder uh, conspiracies. It's actually a great series on this um, by Abby Richards, who's known as Topology on TikTok. Really suggest watching it. Um, It really opened my eyes on some things. What John and Susan go on to describe, though, is getting into this area. The aliens apparently showed them that Earth would be hit by an environmental disaster and they were able to show them holographic images of this disaster. The aliens also indicated that they had been watching humans for many years, and they were part of a genetic uh, experiment which seemed to involve children in some way. John and Susan went into so much detail, it's actually way too much to discuss here. I'm going to post links to the whole article that I found. Yeah, Yeah, it's fascinating. They went into descriptions of the spaceship propulsion system, um, they mentioned some of the aliens' names, how they communicated by mind reading, reading even clothing textures, a description of the craft's interior design, organic AI computers, 
um, they even mentioned possible sea bases that they the aliens had here on Earth. Just really a dizzying array of very strange and specific details. That's quite interesting. So have you seen all those theories on UFOs that are not from outer space, they're from the sea? No, I haven't seen that. <laughs> it's getting quite popular. It's quite popular um, theory that a lot. Well, a lot of um, UFO sightings that happen at sea, um, they end. They either come out of the sea or disappear into the sea, and I th- it links to the whole hollow earth theory, which again is another rabbit hole we do not have time for today. I just like to point out that sailors once thought that the kraken um, was, you know existed and could be regularly seen and it turned out not to be the kraken at all we now know it was whale willies yay (laughs) and manatees were mermaids mind you a lot of these things i'm talking about the ufos in the water are recent these like the navy the u.s navy yeah the u.s navy though (laughs) yeah (laughs) no i'm not disparaging anyone i just you know i like to think of this logically I do. I like. I don't know how I. Feel. I'm going to talk about this later. I don't know how I really feel about alien encounters. I find it fascinating, but I'll I'll talk about my the the theories I like later. The theory I really like. I, I won't go into a lot, but I don't know if you've heard of it. The Black Knight satellite. I haven't heard of it. It's apparently a satellite that's been circling the Earth for ten thousand years, but on a north to south orbit. Most um, satellites go east to west or west to east, you know, on a horizon orbit. But this one, weirdly, and it stops and starts and stops and starts. And because of the signal it's sending out to the Orion, a star in the Orion's belt, that it, it's been, yeah, they've worked out it's been going around for 10,000 years. And the first person to pick it up and and start to wonder about it was Nikola Tesla. Oh, wow. Hmm. So it, even if like you go into it totally skeptic, it's just an interesting story. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Is interesting. I mean, when they say satellite, they could mean it, it, the moon as a satellite. It could be a yeah. piece of rock. Well, if you look at it, if you anyone listening is interested, Google Black Knight satellite. It's an interesting shape. I will look it up after we've recorded this. So, because the family were given pseudonyms, we can't find a lot about what went on or what they were like, apart from uh, there's this description by Andrew, who uh, said of the family that they were very normal, simple, warm family from Essex. John was then 32. His wife, Elaine, was 28. Their three children, Kevin was 10, Karen was 11, Stuart was seven. Uh, Though John had left school at the age of 15, Andrew described him as very intelligent and creative person who worked many different jobs over the years, um, mostly carpentry and construction, but he'd also been a radio disc jockey. He said he expresses points effectively and has a vast vocabulary, although he's keeping, he says he's got a typical London, Londoner style personality, which is, you know, what sort of a lot of people in Essex do. He also said he dislikes officialdom, snobbery and the rich, which, you know, I'm with you there, John. Mm-hmm. His wife, uh, Susan, sorry, they call her, they keep on switching between Elaine and Susan. It's very irritating. <laughs> <laughs> he he described Susan, on the other hand, as being very quiet. Um, she left school at 16 to become an accountant and then became a full-time housewife and mother after she married John. But he says that the personality changes were quite extreme in Susan as well, that she became much more assertive and confident after this incident, just like how they all turned vegetarian apart from Stuart and John had his breakdown. He actually went from working as a disc jockey, jockey and a carpenter to working in care. 
so he had it was almost like a 180 personality mm. sort of switch for him he became sort of much more um grounded and uh sort of caring apparently so the incident of 1974 with his whole family was not the only ufo encounter that john just seems to have had um and we only know this through andrew because again pseudonyms we can't look up at any of these people although if you're listening I want to talk to us, but still want your anonymity. We can go along with that. We'd like to hear from you. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. We'll even, if you want to do a, an interview, we'll find some voice changing software and, you know, yeah, protect your identities. So the first episode of these other UFOs that John had encountered was actually when he was courting Susan. Um, he says it was perhaps around 1965 to 1966 they were at a seaside resort in Essex located on Walton and Nays, and they were strolling along the seafront when over the ocean they spotted a large flat star-like thing flying erratically. It stopped looping the loop, darting across the sky, Andrew wrote. He said it was in view for about 10 minutes uh, just before it shot off out to sea. He said that around 10 to 15 other people had been watching it as well. So again, obviously, we don't know any of these people, but if you were one of these people, get in contact. Mm -hmm. Then in 1968, John was a passenger in a car with three others riding down the M1 motorway just outside of London when a large bluish white light headed towards them. Andrew wrote, the brake lights of the car in the front intensified and then went out, after which the car appeared to be slowing down and John presumed the engine had been cut. After the lights were cut, they then hit the car in front and consequently the car in front of that, whose lights and engine had also cut out. All the drivers left their cars and chatted together, then decided to call the police. In the confusion, the light was ignored and it presumably disappeared. <laughs> I mean, I, I do wonder a bit there that if they maybe were like, well, we've got to tell the insurance company something. That's so British. Forget the <laughs> extraterrestrial, the insurance. We need to sort this out. <laughs> there was, I just love that these like three cars of people were just like, oh, that was weird. So anyway, I'm with Aviva. <laughs> And then sometime just before the 1974 incident, John was driving along Averley Road again around 8.30am when he happened to glance up through his windshield and notice an airliner in the sky above. However, John was quite amazed and noticed that behind the airliner was a large cylindrical looking object, seemingly twice the size of the plane and appearing to keep pace with it. And suddenly the mysterious object shot away and was lost from sight. Very interesting. I mean, the fact that it was next to an aircraft so you could you know, compare them. It's interesting, but also I do wonder if it was, you know, time of day, the light, whatever, maybe it was the shadow being cast by the aircraft. Yeah, like a contrail or chemtrail, if you want to go into that area. <laughs> no, I was just thinking it's like the shadow from the light being cast onto yeah. a, a cloud or something. Yeah. And we keep on going. Oh, my God. So this one involves the whole family again. So it was October 1977. Uh, they're travelling home in Averley to Walton, on the Nays along the A12 um, between Gallows Corner and Brentwood when they noticed a large bluish star-like light. That's really difficult to say. Star-like yeah. light. Star-like light, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> moving through the sky in a similar direction to their car. This light kept in view on the left-hand side of the car until they almost reached Colchester some 40 to 50 miles from where they had first seen it. Andrew wrote in his report, during the time the objects changed speed and height and at one point was just above the treetop level, at which point they could make out that it was an oval shape 
And also at this point, the car radio crackled and eventually the station was lost. The car lights and engine also acted oddly at this point. Eventually, the light climbed high into the sky and was seen to disappear in front of them at incredible speed. Hmm. So um, I've got a couple of notes here that uh, Andrew Collins, who was the investigator, said um, he did the same route that they were traveling the day they got uh, apparently abducted. And he timed the route as 22 minutes. So at 9.50, they were on the street, but then they ended up at home at 1 a.m. Three hours. Yes. So that is the Averley incident. And it's quite extraordinary and quite mad. Well, I like what's interesting was, I know the first the first one, I was quite quick to say, ball lightning. But yeah. How, how much of a coincidence would it be to see it twice in your lifetime? I mean, it's one of the rarest meteorological phenomenons around and i mean if i'd heard the second bit where they were traveling along the a12 which by the way has got so many ufo encounters on the database the a12 the aliens or whatever love the a12 to see the same thing again i I can't believe it's ball lightning twice well do you know if they'd used their real names i might i might have possibly said that it was a little bit i'm really sorry to say it sounds like a little bit of attention seeking behavior I, I don't know whether I, I can really, I don't know whether I really feel like that is the case here. Just because they don't use their real names, there's no nothing coming their way that, you know, no one's sort of hunting them down for interviews well, apart from those cars. decades later. It's probably um, the three cars that freak them out. Yeah, I mean, it's all very and, strange and being laughed interesting. At. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Again, I don't, I, I can't just, I can't sort of 100% confirm my feelings about UFOs, but maybe after this next story, I'll go into a few theories that are meant to sort of question the UFO sightings. Cool. Cool. Did you want to go? Yeah. This one again. Guess what year, Elsa? 1963. Oh yeah. We're in East Mersey on Cooper's Beach. And this is a sighting that was sent in by T.W. Wade. And the sighting is described as followed. A bright light, spherical object in shape, travelling east to west, followed an erratic course, stopping and starting with the lights fluctuating. It was visible from directly overhead to an angle of 45 degrees to the horizon and was seen for around 20 minutes. Now, the ministry sent a letter back to um, T.W. Wade saying that they thought that it was an aircraft anti-collision light. And they actually put in a scribble next to his report an overestimation of time. So they thought he overestimated what he'd seen. Now, T.W. Wade did come back with this letter and I'll read it to you as it as it is because it's, it's great. Dear Mr. White, so this letter eventually made it into the hands of uh, Mr. White. I thank you for your letter of the 26th instant and note your observations. I am convinced, however, that whatever the object was, it was definitely not an aircraft. I served from 1936 until 1946 with Anti-Aircraft Command. During the period September 1939 to June 41, I was in Aircraft Identification NCO and had plenty of expertise in observing aircraft at night, purely on silhouette. In your second paragraph, you state the light was probably an aircraft anti-collision light. By this, I assume you mean the flashing lights observed on aircraft showing an alternating position from various points of the fuselage and wings. The object observed was, however, now this it says a word here, I'm not quite sure what it says. I'm just guessing it says globe, globature, but it's, it's, re, it's beautiful handwriting, but it's quite hard to decipher. So globature in shape and with the naked eye appeared as another star. 
apart from the fact that it was moving. When observed with a pair of 750 binoculars, the whole object was pulsating orb of light. As I explained on the telephone, to confirm what I had seen, I called two other adults to verify and briefly describe again as below. My 14-year-old daughter and her friend were the first to observe the object and called me to look at it. And as I quote in her own words, Dad, there's a pyramid overhead which has stopped. She had watched it approach uh, Mersey Island from the direction of Malden passing over Bradwell. I watched it from the south to a point approximately 45 degrees to the horizon, over which point it went to cl- towards Clacton. The course was of a zigzag nature and appeared to stop on two occasions. This 45 degrees of something, sorry, took about 20 minutes. Whereas known satellite times from um, press and radio announcements have usually showed that there's a northwest to north uh, to southeast sort of trajectory. This was, however, in a different trajectory and was about five to eight minutes away from this. So he really goes into some really quite specific. He like knows he's, what he's talking about. He that's what I I get the feeling that he's trying to go back to the ministry and say like you're trying to fob me off as some idiot country bumpkin, but I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. So he goes on to say, if on any future visit to Mersey I observed any other objects, is there anywhere I can phone immediately to report? Perhaps you could also advise me whether there are any satellites orbiting this part of the country. Um, and what to do if I observe this on a clear night. Thanking you for your interest in my support and hoping the further information may be of some use. I am yours faithfully, T.W. Wade. And it's just puts at the bottom, ex-bombardier and all his like military um Yeah, he was titles. annoyed. He was annoyed at being fobbed off the first time. <laughs> I don't blame him, to be fair. I mean, he, you know, a lot of people take a lot of their it's quite a leap to admit they've seen something or explain they've seen something, knowing full well the likelihood is they're gonna get fobbed off. I mean, I I feel that. I don't tell my UFO story to a lot of people because I know they're gonna go, Oh, it's probably this. It's like, no, it blinking wasn't. And I, I, I found that letter really refreshing. And I know they, they went back to him with a, a letter just saying probably the Echo satellite. And it's like, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. At least give him the, you know, benefit of a, of a more detailed letter. The pyramid thing sounded a bit like the weather balloon again. It did, yes. I mean, it didn't say which way round it was. I mean, if no. it was with the apex down, I would have said definitely a, um, a weather balloon. And I came across another couple of things uh, just to show the notes that the ministry perhaps didn't think that a Freedom of Information Act would make available later. So this is in Essex, but I just thought it was brilliant. So I'm going to share it with you. So there was a a Mr. Ilstead. He saw something near Crystal Palace and he went into a lot of detail about what he saw. And the ministry actually came back and was saying that any planet or star, in particular Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Sirius, or Betelgeuse, when viewed by the human eye through a mist, have been observed to change colour and move at fantastic speeds and perform erratic manoeuvres. So obviously he'd said all those things and they came back with that. Are Sirius, sorry, are Sirius and Betelgeuse um, planets or stars? I always thought they were stars. They're they're stars, yeah. Yeah, they're part of the Orion uh, uh, constellation. Yeah. I know this. Oh, no, Sirius isn't, but Beetlejuice is. Beetlejuice is, yeah. yeah. And he actually went on to make a poem. Would you like to hear the poem? I would love to hear the poem. <laughs> and it says, forgive me, but 
twinkle, twinkle, little stars, surely you're not all from Mars. When we mention atmospherics, don't develop mild hysterics. Astronomers <laughs> note that many a planet won't keep still when you're trying to scan it. Nasty reflection and refraction damn near drive them to distraction. Dispersion also plays its part to make a planet stop and start. So an astronomer builds on a great big mountain like Mount Wilson, Twinkle, twinkle, little star. Now we know just where you are. And then underneath that, another officer has just gone, absolutely. <laughs> Hang on, these were the notes that the government wrote. Yeah, these were the scribbles on the report. I love that. They wrote no, obviously passed poem. it between each other. I know. Oh, and that's so cute. <laughs> I just want to end with this one. There was something else I, I found in the reams of um, letters. And there was one, and it's it was dated the 30th of September. Guess which year? 1963. 1963. If ever we can time travel, can we go back so to 1963 and just drive around East Anglia? I'm going to do some shopping if we go back. I mean, imagine how cheap everything's going to be. And the clothes. Oh, I love it. <laughs> so, well, there you go. We're sorted. <laughs> so, on the 30th of September, there was a little note that had been passed between departments that said, We've received the attached card from Mr. P.W. Baines and proposed to do nothing about it, unless you think we should. And that was signed R.H.Y. <laughs> the reply was, means nothing to me. I presume that UFO stands for unidentified flying object, and hence the reason for sending us this card. Suggest you file it in your laugh and tear up tray. Oh, brutal. But I couldn't find any of these letters, so I don't know what was said by P.W. Baines. They put Baines. it in the laugh and tear up tray. Exactly. Now, the one thing that is scanned, flipping amazing. Okay. So this is from P.W. Baines and they've got his actual business card that says occult, psychic, UFO and geological investigator and observer. This is dated the 25th of September. So this was delivered to the ministry. Maybe MI8 would be interested in my services if you would send them these cards. For their information, I shall be at the Cafe Royal on Regent Street, on Thursday the 18th in black tie, wearing a red carnation. Black tie. <laughs> Did he go? There you go. If we get a time oh. machine, can we go to the Cafe Royal on Regent Street? I want to see if he went. You and your blue hair would probably scare the life out of him. He'd probably think you were an alien. I was going to say, if we do travel back in time, maybe we were the <laughs> aliens. But again, uh, June and Mr. Baines, I love them. They, 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 they just knew what they believed and just kept on. I, I just love honestly, whole... I'd love to meet them. I'd love to have a pint with them. They do sound like good pub buddies. They do. I mean, I might go a bit mad, like if I knew, if I had to see them every day, but I, I think they sound like fun. So I'm going to talk about some uh, interesting uh, theories about why UFOs don't visit the um, the Earth and why all of this is maybe not what it seems. So the first one is the Fermi paradox. So the reasoning goes that there are billions of stars in the Milky Way similar to the sun, with a high probability that some of these stars have Earth-like planets in a circumstellar habitable zone. Sorry, that's well hard. done. That was a mouthful. <laughs> Many of these stars, and hence their planets, are much older than our sun. If the Earth is typical, some may have developed intelligent life long ago. Some of these civilizations may have developed interstellar travel, a step humans are now investigating. Even at a slow pace of current, currently envisioned interstellar travel, the Milky Way galaxy could be completely transversed in a few million years. And since many of the stars, similar to the sun, are billions of years older, 
the Earth should have already been visited by extraterrestrial civilizations, or at least their probes. However, Fermi says there is no convincing evidence that that has happened. Mm-hmm. And that is the reasoning behind the Fermi paradox. There's a lot more behind it, but it is like eight entire Wikipedia pages. So yeah, I'm not going to yeah. go into the whole thing. <laughs> the other theory that I happen to like, it's quite a sad theory, really. <laughs> but it's, um, you know, I, I just like this theory. So it goes, when you take into account that the universe has a diameter of 546 sectillion miles, it is entirely possible that we haven't found evidence of aliens just because they're too far away. So if a species had the technology and the impetus to travel, what good reason would they have to come here? If they've managed to colonize enough space for their civilization already and make contact with civilizations closer to home, there's little point in them coming out this far to meet us. To them, we could be a backwater compared to other parts of the universe. Here's where universal growth hurts us even more in our search for aliens. If they have already lost their motivation to find us or have finished colonization for their needs, it is up to us to make the discovery. However, we are likely hundreds of years away from being able to send people outside of our galaxy, let alone colonization. Universe was calculated to be expanding, assuming it's constant at 45 miles per second per 3.3 million light years. This means every 3.3 million light years you are from Earth you are moving at 45 miles per second away. Calculate that over a couple of hundred years, it would conceivably take us to escape the galaxy. It is clear we are in a race against time. Why would other civilizations colonize galaxies extremely far away when it's going to keep on getting further? Yes. So that was the two theories that I I, I sort of have heard of before and I liked. I do find the expanding universe one quite sad though, because it basically means that you know, that we're racing against time to actually have definable proof of mm. anything being out there if there is nothing in our galaxy, according to the Fermi paradox. So it we it, it feels very strange to say we could be completely, I mean, Earth could be a complete and utter misnomer on the it like life scale. We could be utterly alone. And that feels very scary to say. Yeah. I actually like, saw it sounds daft but a meme <laughs> that summed it up and it said it's like trying to find alien life is like taking a a teaspoon of water from the sea and going look there's no sharks in it there's no such thing as sharks <laughs> it's that vast exactly yeah i mean i you know i i believe there is probably life on other planets i really hope there is because i find it ve- like it's like being alone in a haunted house thinking mm. that we are completely alone in this universe but so I do believe there are life most probably on other planets, but I do find that um, the expanding universe theory very like attractive as a as a reason for why we don't have absolute proof. Yeah, I have one last report of alien encounters, and this was from a website that was sent to me again by my friend who didn't wish to be named on the podcast. Um, she actually had had her own story which was fascinating but I'm not going to tell it maybe when she hears this she'll get the get the feeling that she wants to do it but please tell us <laughs> maybe not um so in culture Essex uh around 2004 there was apparently a sighting of something very strange it was daytime it was uh 12:16 so it was around noon and uh this encounter took over 2 hours 
And the object size was about 200 foot. Uh, for some reason, they put a distance of one meter and the object was round and luminous green. Um, and what they said was flying dish shooting at me. And in their full description, they put them lasers was real art. I know. I saw that one. <laughs> I love it. I, I love, it love it so it. much. It's it's so it's so Essex. <laughs> I, I've, have you heard the really angry one? Hang on. There's a really angry one on the database. Oh, my God. Let me try and find it because it just cracked me up. I don't, I just loved that one because it. it's obviously some kid in their lunch break at school found the website and was just like, I'm going to put in a real funny one here. Temp <laughs> lasers as well. Or. They even spelt was W-O-Z. Oh, no. Oh, that's yeah. just, I love it. I love it. It reminds me of this time I found this brilliant graffiti outside of the Bristol Science Museum. <laughs> just, oh my God, it still cracks me up today. It just said um, Shakespeare was here. <laughs> I love it. It's just, you know, outside of the Science Museum, nothing to do with literature or Shakespeare. And was and Shakespeare there at one point? Absolutely, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just, you know, he was he was here, right? <laughs> Just imagine that in a in a Somerset uh, accent. It's brilliant. That's brilliant. Bear with me a second. I just got to read this out to you because I've written it down as it was said. This was the 29th of January, 2009, and was seen in Colchester, Essex. And I'll, re- I'll read it as it said. We keep getting flown over by aliens galore, dropping <laughs> germs, and we keep getting colds. Please send the RAF to USAF to stop them. I just love how angry it is. It's like, for God's sake. I mean, we get a lot of helicopters. I've never seen them drop germs, but... No, we get so many helicopters over here. The house rattles, like the Chinooks and the... um... Yeah, we get them. They're so bad. Like, the whole house vibrates. Yeah. (laughs) Well, would you like to see my surprise now? Yes, please. Okay, so listeners, if you follow the link in our in the description of this podcast or if you go to our twitter or our instagram i'll post this video it is high production valued (laughs) description of what i saw and watching it now Oh, that was lovely, Beth. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, yeah, as you said, it looked like a macaroon. Yeah, like a macaroon. Or oh, do you remember a few years ago they made those, I don't know if it was McDonald's or somewhere else, made those black burgers? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it looked very much like that. I suddenly really have a very strong craving for McDonald's. I always have a craving for McDonald's. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it. At the time, you know, if you go by the picture I painted, my husband, sister-in-law and son were in the studio and I couldn't shout them because I was just like so like gobsmacked that it was so blinking, obviously, a UFO. It wasn't a plane, whatever it was, that the shape I drew you is the shape it was. <laughs> I'm not embellishing at all. And I was just like, it's moving fast enough that if I went and got them, it would have gone by the time I came yeah. out. I couldn't 
go to my <laughs> phone because I thought by the time I get back, it's going to go. So I just stood there and just like, absor- like so I'm going to just try and remember every detail of this because this is incredible. And I just watched it go. And then they all came out of the studio and like, what the hell? What, what's wrong? And I was like, <laughs> and they were just like, oh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but that's what I saw. That is what I saw, Elsa. I kid you not. I, my brain automatically wants to go, well, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this. But I, I, you know, I believe you. Yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've been really good lately. I've been quite sceptical about things. I've been trying to think of ways. And yeah, I did think could it have been a weather balloon. But weather balloons don't really have lights on them. Or not to that extent. I mean, this was a ring of yellow, bright yellow lights going around the middle. And it was moving in a really, ele- as I say, elegant way. And it, it zigzagged slightly in and out of the clouds. It it was being steered. Mm. And it was too big for a drone. It was too high for a drone. And it was, yeah, you know, I didn't hear anything. I mean, normally aircraft, when they go over, make a bit of a racket. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things, like, if unless you see it yourself, you can't really get how strange it is. Like, yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's really easy for me to sit here and go, well, it could be this, it could be that, it could be that. But I haven't seen any, I mean, apart from the weird green light, which I, you know, automatically dismissed. Um, I've never really seen anything for myself. So maybe one day I'll see something and I'll um, change my opinion. Well, I mean, that, that's, that's the first one I've had in Essex, as I said in the video. I have had two others. Do you want to hear them? Or shall I save them for another UFO episode? I think we should save them for another UFO episode just because we have been, I don't know how long have we been going already. We've been yabbering away for quite a while now. Yeah, it's a long episode already and we need to get through a few um, administrative things at the end. We do. So yeah, listeners, are, you know, I'll share them with you another time. <laughs> so we are going to be starting a Patreon. Uh, we'll announce when it's uh, live and we'd appreciate whatever you can um, help us with. Uh, we do have some costs that come up with the podcast. We do it for the love of it, but also it does cost us a bit. And we'd love to expand and do more with it. But we don't, uh, we're going to need some help, basically. Yeah. I mean, it's not just we're volunteering, we're out of pocket. <laughs> and as, as I said, we love doing it. But if we want to do more and put more time to it, do it properly so it's an actual oral history project i mean part of the reason why we want to do it more professionally is that we're now associated with the folklore network and the british library they want to archive our recordings so we want to do it properly for the sake of posterity and we want to be able to offer things to you guys that will cost us a bit of money to make i mean it's not a huge amount of money but maybe some but we want to offer them to as many people as we can uh, we've got projects that we've had in the works for years that we'd love to get rolling um, related to Erie Essex. So it seems like this is a good conjuncture to release the Patreon and ask for a little bit of help here. <laughs> Whoever is our first Patreon supporter, will I'll send you my puppet show. That's a promise. <laughs> Whoever supports actual, us first will get the actual puppet the show. The actual posted, yeah, that would be... A, a fantastic piece of history. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just high class stuff. It's, you know, it's up there with uh, Tim Burton. Uh, aliens. Burton. <laughs> M. Night Shyamalan has nothing on me. <laughs> We're not expecting a lot. We're not expecting anything at all. But if it just covers our hosting, 
Yes, yeah, so it covers our hosting. That would be fantastic. Like, we, we'll list all the different tiers that we're going to be releasing and what they involve, what you'll get from them. And, and we understand, you know, times are tough. And there's so many podcasts at the moment that are so amazing and also asking for Patreon. They'll be as reasonable as we can make them. Exactly. And you'll still always get the same Eerie Essex episodes for free. We'll never make these sort of, we'll never put these behind a paywall. There will be some stuff on Patreon, which is extra to the episode, but these will always be as they have always been completely free. Yeah. We do it out of love. Yeah. We do it for the love of it. And we should shout out some of our our personal faves this week. Yes. Do you want to go first? I would like to go first. I have been so into um, Tales of the British Isles. It is fantastic. I, I couldn't find his name anywhere. But the person who hosts the podcast retells some very old, sometimes they're not so old. I uh, just listened to the London one, which uh, some of it took place in, I think, the 30s. But he retells these classic uh, fairy tales and folklore, uh, but in a way that really makes it relatable to today. Um, and it's very, very funny. He actually makes you feel like you're having a conversation with him, um, like even though he's like doing that. it on his own. It's brilliant. I really recommend listening to it. Uh, my favorite episode so far has been Kate Crackernuts. Um, <laughs> it's so good. And, and one I'd like to mention is a podcast that has supported us right from the off. Bless them. Every time we release something, they retweet it, they repost it, they tell their fans about it. And that is Welcome to Horror. And it's a fortnightly show in which Lee and Adam introduce horror horror novice Chris to all the delights the genre has to offer and I think sometimes they have extra guests don't they um, yeah I think I've had an episode where they've had uh separate people on yeah. there um I'm I'm personally waiting for them to do Rosemary's Baby and uh, <laughs> I'll put that out there now that please do Rosemary's Baby it's my favorite horror film um, they're a lovely they're a lovely bunch of guys and they've been really helpful to us supporting us yeah and yeah they they, they basically pick one or two films each podcast and they go through it and they watch it and what's nice is they also announce it in advance so you can watch the film and then catch up on it and that's actually very similar I suppose I'm going to do a double shout out now uh the Museum of Witchcraft in Boss Castle have got the Occult Film Club and they do something very similar they'll pick a film and uh then discuss it afterwards so there's two two podcasts for me two for the price of one there you go go on you've got lots to keep you occupied now so the program I mentioned earlier is available on Amazon Prime. It's called Hellier. Uh, two seasons really suggest having a watch of it. And another thing I have been watching a lot recently is uh, We Are Watcher. So if you know um, BuzzFeed Unsolved, Shane and Ryan, uh, two of my favourite ghost hunters who have ever graced our screens, they now have their own production company called Watcher. They have... Uh, they, they're going to produce uh, something very similar to BuzzFeed Unsolved called Ghost Files. Um, it sounds fantastic. It isn't out yet, but their other series like Puppet History. Oh, it's so fantastic. I love it so much. And Top 5 Beatdown. It's all so funny. It's it's really just so, so much fun to watch in there. It's very entertaining. I did watch one of them on your recommendation of the week and I howled with laughter at one bit. Um, I think I can't. I I still don't know who's who. Sorry, <laughs> but one of them said, um, "If you could, if there's someone here, say a word." And uh, one of them said something. I can't remember what word it was. And the other one goes, "That's not even a word." Oh, well, it was this time last week when we were playing Scrabble. 
<laughs> they just got such a lovely rapport and they're so funny together. Oh, they're brilliant. They, like I said, they're my two favourite ghost hunters. <laughs> well, there you go. That's lots to keep people entertained until next month when we're going to be talking about is it theatres. I believe it is theatres. The one I keep on putting in as a placeholder. <laughs> but we have had some listener stories. Yes, we have had some listener stories. So it is no longer a placeholder. We're going to do theatres. We're going to do it proper. Going to go to town. Literally. <laughs> but we hope you've enjoyed this episode. And as ever, if you know anything more about the stories we've talked about, particularly if you know June or <laughs> June, who's my other favourite? Uh, what was his name? TJ? T- TW. TW Wade? No, yeah, TW. Any of them. They're all <laughs> legends. <laughs> if they're, or, they're still around, bless them. This was the 60s. John and Sue Day. Or any of the kids, if you know they're grown up now, if they want to talk about it, we're here. We're here to to listen. We are here to listen and believe. I mean, we've had our own UFO experiences. So I there hope, you go. Despite my numerous professions of being a skeptic, I do have an open mind and very excited to hear stories from other people. Yeah, and it, you know, if you want to meet us to talk about it, we can get a pint in at the pub, and we'll get our recorder out. Okay, so it's bye from Elsa, and it's bye from Bethan. Bye. Bye. If you'd like to share a story or have more information on this episode's topics, you can contact us via email at eerieessexpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter under Eerie Essex for more content from the episodes and sneak peeks of future topics. If you've enjoyed listening, why not consider leaving us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts? <laughs>